Hello, We the People listeners. This is Nikandra Yanachi, your producer. It's time for another episode of Ask Jeff. Tweet Jeff your questions using the hashtag AskJeffNCC or go to bit.ly slash AskJeffNCC to submit them anonymously. That's bit.ly slash AskJeffNCC, all lowercase, uh, to submit them. Questions are due by Sunday at midnight, and we will record and publish next week. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we explore the growing national debate about restoring voting rights to felons. On April 22nd, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe ordered the restoration of voting rights for more than 200,000 Virginia residents with past criminal convictions. The governor's order applies to all violent and nonviolent offenders who've served their full prison sentence and completed parole or probation. Opponents have called the move a reckless abuse of executive power motivated by partisan politics. The Virginia Republican Party is expected to file a lawsuit challenging the order. Joining us to parse this fascinating debate are two of America's leading experts on the issue. Roger Clegg is president and general counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity and a returning friend of the podcast and a new friend, Erica Wood, professor of law and director of the Voting Rights and Civic Participation Project at New York Law School. Roger, Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here, Jeff. Uh, Roger, let's begin with you and tell us about the history of felon disenfranchisements. You have written about this. This is a rich history uh, that goes back to uh, Greek and Roman times. It has uh, special mention in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, and many states have these disenfranchisements today. Uh, give us, if you will, a, a, a sort of a quick summary of everything we need to know about the history of disenf- felon disenfranchisements in America. Well, everything that you that you say is uh, is, is is true. The practice of disenfranchising felons has roots in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, it was uh, part of English law and came over to the colonies. Um, it has long been. Uh, the practice in in many states to to disenfranchise people convicted of serious crimes, um, at least while they've been in prison, and even after they've they've been in prison for for some period of time. Um, and as you mentioned, it is uh, recognized in Section Two of the Fourteenth Amendment as something that states um, do. From time to time, uh, it is true that the uh, disenfranchisement laws were were tweaked uh, in some southern states in the uh, era immediately uh, succeeding uh, Reconstruction era, and they were tweaked in a way that was uh, designed to uh, target the newly freed slaves to target African Americans to uh, to try to keep as many of them from voting as possible. Um, those laws are no longer on the books, and the Supreme Court has 
made clear that a law like that is unconstitutional. In 1986, in a case uh, called Hunter versus Underwood, the Supreme Court unanimously uh, struck down a, an Alabama law that had been written in a way to target African Americans for uh, disenfranchisement on the basis of criminal convictions. Uh, that decision was written by then Justice Rehnquist. Uh, so that is, um, in a nutshell, what the uh, history of these laws is. Um, if you like, Jeff, I can I can discuss a little bit the the rationale behind felon disenfranchisement, or I can be quiet and let huh. uh, let Erica respond. You know, uh, why don't uh, we turn to Erica because there's so so much in this history to unpack. And thanks for that great introduction, Erica. As Roger set this up, um, this history does go back to the time of the Framing, um, uh, our great constitutional prep team uh, reminds me that the early laws about felon disenfranchisement rested on John Locke's concept that those who break the social contract shouldn't be allowed to participate in the process of making society's rules. Uh, uh, Roger mentioned that Section 2 of the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War seems explicitly to allow the disenfranchisement of those who participate in rebellions or were convicted of other crimes. And the Supreme Court has relied on that language in viewing that as an exception to the general suspicion today of uh, singling out uh, suspect classes. And today, just to put the numbers on the books, 48 states disenfranchise felons, with Maine and Vermont being the only two states that allow felons to vote, even while they're incarcerated. Um, uh, so those are the numbers. And in 38 of the 48 states, most ex-felons automatically get the right to vote on the completion of their sentence. So, Erica, if you will, help us uh, understand this history and how to reconcile it with your uh, notion, as you've written, that this history is inconsistent with our modern notion of voting as a fundamental right. And you've said that denying the right to vote to people who are living and working in the community runs counter to the modern ideal of universal Suffrage is, is your position that this that this uh, history is sort of atavistic, and we've come the meaning of the right to vote has changed, and and we should uh, adjust our understanding accordingly. Yeah, so I think there's a, a few things to to understand. Um, certainly, our country has come a long way since uh, you know the writers of the Constitution, when voting was limited to property owning white males in particular parts of the country. So. Uh, you know, certainly the vibrant and diverse democracy that um, thrives in our country today, uh, you know, has been the result of uh, progressive thinking as well as, you know, battles, um, you know, uh, in, on the on the war fields, but also in the streets and in the courts. Uh, so our country has worked long and hard to open up and expand the franchise to include women and um, African-Americans and other minorities and immigrants and, uh, you know, poor people, and, and it really is sort of the foundation um, of our democratic system today. But looking at the history, uh, there certainly is significant evidence um, that during the Jim Crow era in the late 1800s, uh, there was renewed interest in criminal disenfranchisement laws, and, and Roger mentioned this, but, but he did say that, you know, those, books, those laws are no longer on the books, but that's that's really just not true, and it's important to kind of understand and trace the fact that many of these laws do have these racist roots, um, that they spread as part of a larger backlash against, backlash against the adoption of the Reconstruction Amendments 
So as our country was opening the franchise to include freed slaves and African-Americans, a number of states were uh, uh, resistant to that, uh, did not want to see that happen for any number of different social and political reasons. Uh, and so the white elites in, many, in those states, um, many in the South, though not exclusively, and I've done quite a bit of research on the history of law in New York, um, so not exclusively in the South, um, sought to hold on to their political power by figuring out ways that they could keep African-Americans from the polls without going against the technical legal requirements of the 14th and 15th Amendments. So things like um, uh, poll taxes and literacy tests, um, which people are very familiar with, came into play as a way to bar African-Americans and newly freed slaves from participating in the franchise. And along with those efforts were these criminal disenfranchisement laws. Um, these laws um, spread between 1865 and 1900. 27 states enacted laws restricting the voting rights based on a criminal conviction. And at the same time, if you look at the history, states expanded their criminal codes. Um, many people might be familiar with the historical black codes to punish offenses that they believe, these um, white elites believe, targeted recently freed slaves. So things like vagrancy, petty larceny, miscegenation, bigamy, crimes of, quote, moral turpitude. Um, and those laws actually, you know, uh, they, they targeted criminalization and felony disenfranchisement and combined to produce a legal loss of voting rights that uh, really suppressed large portions of the African-American vote for decades. And those laws do remain on the books in many states. When Governor McAuliffe issued his ex ex executive order, you know, he referenced a quote from um, the ninth Virginia 1901 Constitutional Convention. Carter Glass, who later became a prominent United States senator, said that the law in Virginia would, quote, eliminate the darky as a political factor in this state. That law remained on the books in Virginia and, to, you know, and remains on the law, remains the law in Virginia, um, even after this executive order from Governor McAuliffe. Um, looking at New York, um, you know, if you read through some of the quotes in the Constitutional Conven Convention, um, Delegate uh, John Kennedy said there was more vice among colored people, quote, and the relative proportion of infamous crime is nearly 13 and a half times as great in the colored population as in the white. And in the next breath, in that constitutional convention, he said to permit the Ethiopian race to become an important portion of the governing power of the state, nature revolted at the proposal. So I think there's, there's really little question if you go back and read the history of these laws that uh, in response to the Reconstruction Amendments, many of them were um, intended to work with targeted criminalization to try to prevent African Americans from participating in the franchise. Fascinating. Okay, the debate is well and truly joined. Roger, now is definitely the time for you to give us your account of the history of these laws. Which of them before Reconstruction do you think are constitutionally permissible? And how should we make of the Supreme Court statement in the Hunter and Underwood case that although laws uh, adopted for racially discriminatory reasons, like the Alabama felon disenfranchisement law of 1901 might be constitutionally suspect, the taint of those laws could be cured if they were readopted for non-racially discriminatory purposes. Well, I think that's a critical point, and I think it's uh, uh, you know one of the points that I was going to make. I mean, listen, I I could not agree, I could not disagree more with with uh, Erica's statement uh, that. You know, there are lots of laws on the books now that have these, these racist origins. I don't think that there is a single law on the books now that has a, a racist uh, origin. The sort of gold standard in this area for historical research is, uh, has been done by Alexander Kesar, who, by the way, is somebody who uh, 
is in favor of allowing felons to vote as a, as a policy matter. But you know, in his book, he says that outside the, the South, uh, disenfranchisement laws lacked socially distinct targets and generally were passed in a matter-of-fact fashion. And that even in the post-Civil War South, um, felon disenfranchisement provisions were first enacted by Republican governments, that is, um, governments by the, you know, the occupying Union forces uh, that supported black voting rights. Um, historical research in a Yale Law Journal article uh, by Ray and Ray, um, you know, makes the, the same point. Uh, and, you know, two liberals, uh, Professor Zugan and Manza, said that in general, some type of restriction on felons' voting rights gradually came to be adopted by almost every state. Uh, and at present, 48 of the 50 states bar felons uh, from voting. And again, um, these are, this is research by people who, as a policy matter, uh, favor uh, allowing felons to vote. By the way, you know, Jeff, I think it's a good time to, you know, to make the point that um, I don't believe that the Constitution requires states to disenchantise uh, felons. Um, I think that the Constitution leaves it up to states. So, you know, if a state like Maine or Vermont wants to allow felons to vote, they can, but they're, they're not required to allow felons to vote. Um, if you have a state that at one time um, uh, passed a, 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 a law or tweaked a law so that it had racist intent, um, that law would be you know, unconstitutional. But that law is not on the books anymore in Virginia. Um, Erica is correct in her quoting you know, the 1901 statement, but the Virginia Constitution has been rewritten. Um, it was rewritten and readopted in 1971. That would have had to have been pre-cleared by the Justice Department. I've not heard anybody assert that that um, reenactment of the Constitution was done, was done with any kind of, of racial intent. And you know, here's the, the last point on this, this, Jeff. If it were the case that there was persuasive evidence that a law currently on the books had racial intent, then it would be a straightforward matter to go into federal court and have that law struck down. We have a Supreme Court precedent, as we've already discussed, that makes it clear that a law like that would be unconstitutional. Um, that would not be a complicated lawsuit to bring. There are lots of very well-funded organizations, starting with the Obama administration's Justice Department uh, and the Democratic Party, that would be delighted to challenge a law like that if there were any evidence uh, at hand to, to make the case. But those lawsuits aren't being brought, and the reason they're not being brought is because there is no evidence. Thanks so much for that, Roger. Um, Erica, let's talk about Virginia. Governor McAuliffe's order has reenfranchised more than 200,000 people. Um, is there any claim that his order itself is unconstitutional or illegal, uh, or is he relying on the Virginia Constitution itself, Article 5, Section 12, of which grants the governor the authority to remove political disabilities consequent upon conviction of a felony. In other words, are opponents of Governor McAuliffe's order making constitutional arguments, or are they just saying that it's a bad idea uh, politically? 
Yeah, I think there's no question looking at the plain language in the Virginia Constitution as well as, um, you know, a Virginia Supreme Court case that has uh, described and, and characterized that um, that power that uh, Governor McAuliffe had the authority to, to do what he did, uh, restoring voting rights in April. I mean, just to, you know, there's been some discussion a little bit of, of other states, and I think just to give your listeners kind of a general sense of the national landscape and where uh, where uh, Virginia fits in there, because really what Governor McAuliffe was doing was just bringing Virginia into the sort of mainstream of this issue in in the country. Uh, but but just to back up for a minute and give a, a little sense of kind of where the rest of the country is, and then we can focus in on Virginia, if that's helpful. Um, you know, there are more than 6 million people who are denied the right to vote um, in the country. It's more than 6 million American citizens who are denied the right to vote because of a criminal conviction in their past. Two-thirds of those, 4 million, are people who are out of prison and living in the community. So this is uh, a significant number of people who are um, denied the right to vote, even though they are you know, living in the community, paying taxes, sending their kids to school. Um, Roger and you have both mentioned Maine and Vermont. You do not disenfranchise anybody. Uh, you can vote while you're in prison in those two states. Uh, three states now, uh, Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, disenfranchise everyone with a felony conviction for life unless the individual is granted clemency by the governor. So Virginia also fits into that category because it's, it's constitution hasn't changed, um, but Governor McAuliffe has used his executive clemency power to restore voting rights. And then the rest of the states fall somewhere in between. Um, just to give you a sense, 21 states restore voting rights once an individual has completed probation and parole. So that's an automatic restoration. Once you're off probation, parole, and out of prison, you get your voting rights back in 21 states. And 12 states, plus the Washington, D.C., allow people on probation and parole to vote. So as soon as you're out of prison in those states, um, you can vote as soon as you're back in the community. And then, you know, the rest of the states sort of fall somewhere in between. Um, but, uh, you know, what Governor McAuliffe did in April was really just bring Virginia into sort of the mainstream and where the rest of the country is, it sort of caught Virginia up to where we are on this issue uh, today, that when people are out of prison and back in the community, when the criminal justice system has determined that they have served their punishment and that they are rehabilitated and ready to re-enter society, uh, that they have the rights that come along with that of being a, a member of the community. Um, the Virginia um, Constitution um, gives Governor McAuliffe uh, broad power um, to remove political disabilities um, consequent upon conviction. That's the wording of the Virginia Constitution. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, in a case called In Ray Phillips, the Virginia Supreme Court has emphasized that the governor's power to remove um, a felon's political disabilities remains vested solely in the governor, who may grant or deny any request without explanation. That's the wording of the Virginia Supreme Court. So I don't think there's any question that Governor McAuliffe has the authority to do this under his very broad and strong clemency powers, as they've been written in the Virginia Constitution for a number of years. Um, and uh, that he, you know, was simply bringing Virginia into the mainstream of the rest of the country in his decision to exercise that power in April. Thank you so much for that. Roger, do you believe that Governor McAuliffe's order is within his constitutional authority, uh, but is simply a bad idea? Or do you believe that it is unconstitutional or illegal in some respects? I think it's uh, not only a bad idea, but also illegal. But let me make clear that you know, we're now talking about what his authority is under the Virginia Constitution, not under the U.S. Constitution. Um, I'm not an expert on Virginia 
constitutional law, but I will point out that um, prior governors, um, uh, prior Virginia uh, officials uh, of both political parties have looked at this issue and concluded that the governor does not have this this blanket authority. Uh, Tim Kaine, uh, when he was the Virginia governor, he's now a, a U.S. senator, he's a, a Democrat, and on his behalf, a letter was sent by his lawyer, uh, his counselor, to the ACLU saying that the governor did not have executive power to grant a blanket restoration of voting rights. Um, and, you know, likewise, a, a Republican attorney general, Tim Cuccinelli, uh, appointed a, a, a committee to examine this issue with several uh, Commonwealth attorneys and um, professors and members of the uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and so forth, and they concluded that the governor does not have this authority either. You know, a lawsuit has been brought um, uh, by Republican officials uh, in Virginia against the Virginia governor, and this will be sorted out, you know, in in court. But um, you know, I I uh, I don't think that the governor has this authority. And I also think that uh, whether he has the authority or not, it's, uh, it's a bad idea. Um, I don't think that it makes sense to assume that just because somebody you know, has walked out of prison and has you know, finished serving their criminal sentence, that therefore they've, they've turned over a new leaf. Um, Unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that recidivism rates in the United States are extremely high. Um, many more than half the people who walk out of prison are going to be walking back into prison. So I don't think that we can assume that um, uh, the, the person has, has turned over a new leaf. I think it makes sense to wait some period of time, um, look at seriousness of the crime, whether it was part of a series of, of crimes, uh, how recently the kind of crime was committed, and then make the decision on whether the person has, has uh, really turned his or her life around. If the person has, uh, then I'm all in favor of restoring the right to vote, and I think that that could be a, a meaningful um, exercise. You know, it could be like a naturalization ceremony where bring the individual in, and you can bring in his friends and family, and the uh, uh, judge congratulates him on the, the, the fact that he's turned his life around, and, and then the right to vote is formally restored. That would be meaningful. It would be positive. It would be a great way to help uh, incentivize um, people to rejoin civil society to rejoin the, the social contract, as, uh, as you quoted John Locke earlier in the, in the, uh, in, in the discussion. Uh, that would be fine. But just saying that, oh, well, you know, they're out of prison, therefore, you know, we can assume that um, they've, they've turned over a new leaf. I don't think that that makes any sense at all. Great. Well, Erica, there are two important questions on the table. First, is Governor McAuliffe's uh, order illegal? And the second, is it a good or bad idea? Let's begin with the legal question. What is your response to Roger's claim that the governor's order is illegal? Um, I mean, you know, 
I, I also am not an uh, uh, expert on the Virginia Constitution, um, but in my reading of the Constitution and my uh, study of it and in reading, as I mentioned, the In Ray Phillips case, which is a Virginia Supreme Court case from you know, about 10 years ago, uh, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that the governor has very broad and unqualified powers um, in this particular instance to remove political disabilities. That's the wording in the Constitution. Um, and so, I, you know, from my reading of it, it, it does seem as though, you know, he, he exercised his power lawfully as it's granted by the Constitution. Um, as Roger said, you know, if there is a challenge brought, um, we'll see how it works out. The Virginia courts are certainly, you know, those who are authorized and the experts on the Virginia state law, and, and we'll see what they say. But, but, you know, based on my reading of it and my understanding of it, um, it seems pretty clear that he, he had the authority to, to do what he did. Great. Um, on the, do you want me to respond to the second part? <laughs> uh, yes. Whether whether it's a good idea would be great, and 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 we and you can broaden it. You've been giving us a good sense of what's going on around the country. Broadly, Democratic right. governors have been trying to restore voting rights in a blanket way, and Republican governors have tried to pull things back and to prefer the more limited uh, approach that Roger endorses, allowing felons to petition judges to vacate their convictions, which would allow them to vote, as happened in Kentucky. So so give us a sense of what the policy debate is around the country and why you think it's a good idea to restore yeah. voting rights. Sure. So I will say there has been really tremendous forward momentum in the states on this issue. Um, in the last, you know, I'd say about 15 years or so, more than 20 states have either eased, either restored voting rights directly or eased restrictions in one way or another. So they've opened up the franchise and, and made it easier for individuals with criminal convictions to become eligible to vote and to register and to exercise their rights to vote. So there has been a real sea change and a real kind of national recognition. Um, and this really runs, you know, as you mentioned, Kentucky and Florida and some of the most restrictive states, um, Rhode Island, Washington, Nebraska, Iowa, New York, I mean, all around the country, um, states have been opening up and, and easing these restrictions. So there really has been, you know, national um, momentum, um, recognizing that with the rise of mass incarceration in the last few decades and the huge numbers of individuals who are being sentenced for, you know, nonviolent and low-level drug crimes, uh, the dramatic um, uh, disparate impact on minority communities, poor and minority communities, and African-Americans around the country, um, which results in, you know, when you have huge mass incarceration, you have huge numbers of individuals being released back into the community, and that it's really in our society's interest to do everything we can to support that reintegration, that reentry, uh, to uh, help people come back and reconnect to the community, reconnect to their families. Um, and that civic participation and exercising the right to vote is an important part. It's not the only part, but it is an important part of reestablishing that connection, that link, making someone invested in their local community in the political process, having that voice, being able to exercise that right to vote is an important part of that reconnection between an individual and their community and the society. I mean, Roger talks about, you know, this idea of making individual determinations and decisions on an individual basis. And I think that raises a couple of troubling questions. I mean, the first question is, well, who, who's making that decision? He said, and then make a decision about whether that person should get their voting rights back. So who, who's making that decision? And, and what's informing that individual's determination about this other individual? Is that really what our democracy is about, making individual determinations about whether someone is worthy or has somehow earned this privilege of voting? 
Um, you know, that's our, our democracy is much more open and expansive to that. And we welcome all people in who are um, to participate. And, you know, it's really troubling if you've got one person or, you know, one office that's making these individual determinations um, really seems to get close to a character test. And there seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, discretion that can be exercised in sort of parsing out this, what we consider a very fundamental right in our country. So that's the first troubling piece of that uh, type of process. I think the other one is really just the reality, the practical realities of it, as we've seen in places like Virginia and Kentucky and Florida, when you've got large numbers of people coming back to the community um, and large numbers of people applying for the restoration of rights, if there's a, a burdensome application process and papers that have to be filed and documents that have to be gathered, um, and then there's, there's a real backlog. Uh, we've seen in Florida and in Virginia that people have waited for years just for their applications to be processed. And then even after waiting for years, they might just get rejected for no reason whatsoever uh, because of the discretion that's exercised. Uh, so, you know, here we've got people who have been out of prison. If you look at some of Governor McCulloch's recent statistics that he released, uh, you know, the average number of people that, uh, that people, average number of times that people have been out of prison getting their rights restored in Virginia this month, uh, they've been out of prison for 11 years. That's the average length that they've been released. So if you've got people who, you know, have been working and raising families and participating in the community, waiting for years for an application to be processed to get their most fundamental right restored, and then it might be rejected and they have to start the process all over again. Uh, administratively, you know, it doesn't seem to work. It uses a huge amount of resources from the state. Um, and it, you know, denies this fundamental right to people who are living in the community. Great. So, Roger, uh, Erica says, as a policy matter, your more limited proposal to look at felon rights on a case-by-case basis might be impractical. In According to the sentencing project, one in five African-Americans in Virginia can't vote because of felon limitations. And before the McAuliffe's order, the law banned felons from voting for life, even after they'd served their time in prison and on parole. Please respond to her claim about the administrative difficulties, and then more broadly, and this is obviously a question for both of you, is this just politics? The Republican Party in Virginia stated that McAuliffe's order doesn't speak of mercy, but speaks of political opportunism. Uh, do, do, do you believe that McAuliffe issued the order to help uh, Democrats? And what do you say to the counter that Republicans are opposing the order because it would um, help Republicans? Well, let me uh, let me answer the, uh, the, the last part first, um, because I think it will enable me to make a, a couple of important points here. I don't think that the determination of who should be able to vote and who shouldn't be able to vote should be driven in any way by partisan politics. I think that I agree with Erica that it's uh, wrong to deprive somebody of the right to vote because of you know a partisan political uh, belief that you know this person or that person is going to vote the right way or the wrong way. Um, that's 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 clearly uh, something that um, would would be wrong. It would be antithetical to um, the way that our our republic is is set up. And I will say that I became interested in this issue um, uh, and sort of formed my my views on it. Before, there had been a lot of research on which way felons are, are likely to vote. I think that 
the decision should be made on who is qualified to vote and who isn't qualified to vote, and then you know you let the chips fall where they may, and uh, shouldn't be driven by uh, by political considerations. When you think about it, um, we don't let everybody in the United States vote. Uh, we don't let children vote. We don't let non-citizens vote. We don't let people who are mentally incompetent vote. And we don't let people vote who have committed serious crimes against their fellow citizens. And I think that all of those exclusions make sense. The sort of common denominator is that we require certain objective minimum standards of responsibility and commitment to our laws before we entrust people with a role in the solemn enterprise of self-government. And four-year-olds and foreign tourists and people who are mentally incompetent and people who are terrorizing their fellow citizens don't fall into that category. They don't meet those minimum requirements. Um, and we can't assume that just because somebody has walked out of prison that they have turned over a new leaf. Now, um, I understand that um, it's um, an imperfect system to have to make individual determinations on you know, who gets the right to vote back and when. But I don't see any way around it other than just saying that, well, um, we're just going to throw up our hands and you know, let murderers and rapists and, and everybody else vote because we're unwilling to, to do the necessary work in order to engage in some intelligent line drawing here. Um, I think that you can make the process better, you can make it more efficient, you can make it more objective. Uh, those are all things that I'm willing to, to, to do uh, that I think states should be willing to do. Um, for instance, Iowa um, you know, recently you know, streamlined its, uh, its system. Virginia has, um, even, you know, before Governor McAuliffe, uh, Governor McDonald, who's Republican, uh, streamlined the system in Virginia. Uh, there are lots of ways to improve the system without just sort of throwing things out. And um, finally, I would also um, take issue uh, a little bit with Eric. I think that while some states have moved uh, in the direction of uh, enfranchising more felons, other states have not. You know, we've, they've gone back and forth. Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, governors in Iowa and Florida and Virginia have gone you know, back and forth on this issue. Um, another dramatic example is that Massachusetts, which, which used to be one of the states that allowed prison inmates to vote, um, changed that um, a decade or so ago um, when prisoners started to organize political action committees. Uh, even Massachusetts, a very blue state, decided that that was going too far. So I don't think that this is uh, an issue where you know, all the movement is sort of inexorably in, in, in one direction. 
Great. Erica, if you could respond to the partisan point as well, that would be great. On the one hand, uh, the reaction to overcriminalization is now a bipartisan movement that unites folks on the left and the right. But it is the case that all the governors who have expanded felon voting rights have been Democrats and those who have opposed it have been Republicans. What do you say to those who claim that this is really just an effort to get more Democratic voters? Yeah, I think this is this is where Roger and I agree that uh, we both believe that partisan politics politics should stay out of the right to vote. Uh, well, you know, this country has never determined who should get a right to vote based on how we think they might vote or what political party we think they might be affiliated with. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I I think we agree that this is should not be a partisan issue. That um, the right to vote should not be wielded as a partisan tool. Um, or a political campaign tool, um, that it is too fundamental, that it is too um, important, um, and, uh, you know, that it is, uh, you know, the fundamental building block of our country and of our democracy, and that it should not be, you know, meted out or taken away or played with, um, you know, as a, as a tool for political gain or, or partisan gain. So it, we both agree on that. As far as Governor McAuliffe, you know, he has said, on several occasions in the press that uh, this was not motivated by partisan game, but by what he thought was the right thing to do and to bring Virginia, you know, up to where, you know, significant numbers of states already are across the country. Um, you know, what, just in response to one more point and an important point on this kind of individual discretion, uh, you know, Roger again says that decisions should be made. And, and I think it raises another question or the same question of, well, who's making that decision? You know, he, he continues to say that, you know, people, if there's high recidivism rates and just because someone comes out of prison, we don't know if they're not going to turn right back around and walk back in. Well, we have uh, a large and well-funded and sophisticated criminal justice system in this country. Um, and one of the main purposes of that criminal justice system is to decide what the punishment is if someone is to decide guilt, determine guilt. Uh, to, to, if someone is determined to be guilty, to determine what the just and adequate punishment is for that crime, uh, to uh, incarcerate or supervise that individual um, as part of the punishment process, to segregate them, uh, to hopefully rehabilitate them. They are, you know, uh, worthy and and well-educated and experienced individuals who work in departments of correction, departments of probation and parole. Um, whose job and is to determine whether someone has been rehabilitated and is ready to be released to the country. There are parole boards and parole officers and probation officers um, whose sole job and, and um, responsibility is to make that decision based on their education and their experience and their expertise. Uh, and that's, you know, what they're there for. Um, and they're there to protect public safety, and they're there to make a decision if someone is rehabilitated and ready to come back into the community. Our country does not punish people indefinitely. We work hard to rehabilitate people, to try to make them better people, and to get them back on track and reconnect them with their community so that they can become responsible citizens again. Um, it would be a sad and, and tragic place to live if we just continually, permanently punished people. But instead, we have created this system, and it's not a perfect system, but it is a system that we have created to try to determine when people are ready to come back to the community. And we have to trust that system to make that determination. That's what it's there for. Uh, so once those criminal justice professionals have made that determination, and sometimes 
people aren't ready to come back. And sometimes because of social and um, economic circumstances, there are recidivism rates. But as a society, we need to do what we can to trust those individuals to make that decision and to support that reintegration and that reconnection once people are, are determined that they're ready to come back to society. That's where the decision is made. Um, and so adding another level of discretion by some other sort of mysterious person, perhaps an elected official, to try to make a decision about whether someone has earned their voting rights back uh, just doesn't jive with the system that we have right now to determine whether someone has come back to reconnect in the community. Wonderful. Uh, well, this is well said on both sides. It's now time for closing arguments. Uh, Roger, uh, briefly, why do you think that uh, blanket orders reenfranchising former felons are a bad idea, and what do you think a better approach would look like? I think that a blanket approach makes no sense at all, given the fact that it's not just a few individuals who turn out not to have uh, uh, changed their lives around when they get out of prison. It is the overwhelming majority uh, who, who end up going back into, into prison, who end up getting rearrested and, and reconvicted. Uh, to say that, oh, well, you know, uh, these uh, white lab coat uh, experts have determined that uh, these um, People have decided, uh, you know, have, are, are are now pristine and can be fully entrusted with uh, uh, with all rights and responsibilities as citizens is just ludicrous. Um, uh, those white lab coat professionals are doing a horrible job because they're they're batting, you know, under uh, you know under 500. Um, and it's also the case that the um, people who uh, that we have um, uh, a practice in many states uh, where we not only don't return the right to vote when people leave out of prison, there are other things that you don't get just because you've left prison either. For instance, the right to bear firearms, the right to uh, hold certain jobs. You know, we don't let people who've been convicted of sex crimes work in public schools. Now, this isn't to say that somebody should be permanently stigmatized forever and ever uh, and never welcome back into polite society, but it shouldn't be done automatically. And, in fact, if you do it automatically uh, with, without any kind of uh, individual uh, determination, you're actually losing the opportunity to, to do this kind of reintegration that I think Erica and I both want. Um, Again, the process that I would be in favor of is one that does that kind of, of individual uh, scrutiny uh, and then has a, uh, a, a ceremony where the person is formally welcomed back into society. The progress, the, um, uh, the fact that the person has changed is recognized and applauded. And the individual congratulated on that in a, in a public way in front of his friends and family. That would be a meaningful progress, uh, a, a, a meaningful process. But just doing it automatically um, with, uh, with, with, with no kind of, 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 of individual um, you know, scrutiny at all misses that opportunity. Um, finally, let me just mention you know, that the Washington Post, which 
uh, favored what Governor McAuliffe did, said, no doubt the action by Mr. McAuliffe, a Democrat and longtime friend and fundraiser for Bill and Hillary Clinton, has a political dimension. Uh, I don't think that there's any doubt that there, there were politics, uh, there were political considerations driving what Governor McAuliffe did. Great. Thank you so much for that. Erica, last word to you. Why do you think Governor McAuliffe's uh, blanket order reenfranchising felons is a good idea, and why do you think other states should follow suit? Uh, because I, when people are out of prison and rejoining the community, working, raising families, paying taxes alongside all the rest of us, they do not lose their citizenship when they are incarcerated. They remain American citizens. And when they come back to our communities as American citizens, they should have the fundamental rights that come with that citizenship including the right to vote. Now, there may be some states have decided, you know, that they're going to put in place some public safety um, measures uh, to make sure that uh, the, if there is recidivism, um, that people, that there are public safety measures in place. Um, but voting is not an issue of public safety. It is not dangerous for an individual to um, exercise the right to vote um, and go to a polling place and participate in that democratic exercise. Uh, so as soon as people have been de determined by the criminal justice system, by their probation officer, their parole officer, the parole board, the corrections officials have all who work with individuals, who uh, interview the individuals um, and make a determination that an individual has re been rehabilitated and is ready to reenter the society, um, that as part of that process, once that determination has been made, they come back as full citizens um, and that they should have the rights that come along with that. Thank you so much, Roger Clegg and Erica Wood, for a nuanced and illuminating discussion of this fascinating and important question of democratic citizenship. Roger, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. This was great. Appreciate it. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Danielle Evans. It's time for another thrilling episode of Ask Jeff. Tweet me your questions using the hashtag AskJeffNCC or go to bit.ly forward slash AskJeffNCC to submit them anonymously. Wow, if you can find that, then I promise to answer your question. Uh, questions are due Sunday night at midnight, so please stay up late and don't miss the deadline. Uh, get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash ConstitutionCTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitution ctr please subscribe to we the people on itunes while you're in itunes store leave us a rating and review it helps other people discover what we do please also subscribe to live at america's town hall featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from independence hall in beautiful and historic philadelphia we the people as a member of slate's panoply network check out all of our sibling podcasts at itunes.com forward slash panoply. Okay, it's time to get serious, ladies and gentlemen. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center... I'm Jeffrey Rosen.